0: good morning and welcome to legal defense with kirk and john how you doing john i'm
1: doing good i'm doing good how you doing kirk
0: i'm doing well i'm uh yeah you know it's winter whatever i know you love it but oh i uh, well you
1: know, i never said love i never said love I said, you like the seasons i like the seasons a lot yeah and i like i like this time of year obviously it's december and um what's well, not to love you know got christmas well, it's you're such a you're such a fan of christmas you yes. and, oh by uh, the way
0: uh have you seen that there's this uh movie on i think it's netflix but it's a christmas story christmas it's uh
1: like an update of the christmas story you know, in the 70s I, I saw that and i also read the review and the review kind of panned <laughs> it so i haven't gotten around to watching that particular one Although I started the original, of course, was genius.
0: Yes, of course. Um, But I started watching it and it
1: was just like,
0: yeah, I I didn't finish it. (laughs) That's
1: what I heard. That's what I heard. So, um, but I did watch the new Will Ferrell one where it's uh, him and, um, oh God, I forgot his name. Um, uh, Anyway, but it it was (laughs) basically a musical. It's called um, Bewitched or something. or you know, yeah, it's. It's a, uh, it's, it's a musical. They're all, you know, I mean, it's like Will Ferrell singing. I don't know if I can get around, wow. but it did have, <laughs> it did have some pretty witty writing. I have to, I have to give them that. So yeah. Well, anything with Will Ferrell, I, I like, you but know? basically, but basically I, I kind of, you know, I always gravitate back to Hallmark, you know, it's completely <laughs> predictable of course. And um, you know, moving back to their hometown and... Uh, yeah. You know yeah. what I admire about you, um, <laughs> Sir John, is that you
0: are not embarrassed about that. That We make fun oh. of you constantly in the office <laughs> about your love of all things Hallmark. But, yeah. um, you know, good for you that you're not embarrassed by how silly those movies are. But,
1: you know, good. <laughs> well, there's a reason that it's, they're so successful is because they're very... Com- yeah. They're people like you. So, <laughs> They're just they're silly, but, you know, God bless them.
0: God bless right All right. Them. Hey, uh, I'm sure you've heard, but uh, Brittany Griner is home on I U.S. Did. soil. Wow. And um, not without controversy, because if listeners haven't uh, been following the story, there was a trade, uh, one prisoner for another, um, and also the fact that, um, Paul Whelan, who is a former U.S. Marine accused of and convicted of espionage in Russia, mm-hmm. continues to be held on what many say is virtually no evidence. I shouldn't even say virtually no evidence. It's just no evidence. And um, he's been languishing in a Russian prison since 2016.
1: Do you know what the actual like factual basis is for the conviction? I I do know
0: a little bit about it. I've, I've, I've read about it here and there, but basically, um, you know, I, I do know about him. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about him. Okay. He, uh, he was arrested in, um, let's see. Well, I might have this wrong. He, uh, in 2020, he was actually convicted and sentenced to 16 years in Russian prison for espionage. This happened in Moscow. Um, he has said that the court case was a sham and you to use him in the United States to influence the United States, which is probably very likely. Mm-hmm. Um, but the basis of it basically just had to do with the fact that he um, was there on a, and had a, uh, was supposed to have a diplomatic passport, but there was some, something wrong with it or something like that. And they ended up being, uh, accusing him of being there as a spy, even though there was like no evidence of that. It was just some glitch with the way his paperwork worked out. But anyway, this is a guy who by all accounts did nothing whatsoever well, and is sitting one in of the re- city.
1: one of the reasons that the Russians are um, playing this game with Griner, with him, uh, with many others is, um, is because there's a lot of Russians in U.S. prisons, and they want to play this um, exchange game and right. get people back because it's very important, in, especially in their intelligence um, communities. I'm sure you had experience that with your time in the military. That um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a very um, important aspect to ensure that your agents know that you're going to get them back. Right. This is right. Uh, a very, very, very important thing to them. And the although
0: guy, it's also true, if you've ever watched any of those spy movies or read any of those books, um, you know, sometimes when someone's CIA or whatever, you know, working undercover for the State Department, they get
1: caught, they're like, oh, we don't know who that is, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, the guy that they traded for, Victor yeah. Bob, Boot, Victor Boot, Boot. His name. Um, He's a piece of work. He is something else. He um, he was with the Russian military, uh, but then he left and he went to um, the uh, Arab... uh, Yeah, UAE, I think. UAE, yeah, United Arab Immigrant. And he started an air cargo business. And then he began selling arms, using that business, to Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, militants in Rwanda... And then, um, you know, he was he was um, uh, captured. They in 1995, the Taliban forced down one of his planes, and um, and he told he told officials that were that caught him. He says, you know, you know that your arms are going to kill Americans, and he goes and he says, "quote We have the same enemy." End quote. So um, he was he was extradited to the U.S. Yeah. in 2010, and he was. just, is sentenced to 25 years and um, they wanted him back so bad, obviously. And that's why they're holding. What was that other fellow's name? Uh, um, Paul Whelan. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, you know, as much as we complain about our system, which has many flaws, um, you know, and has had many, many travesties and, you know, and all of that, uh, at least I've always felt like there's there's at least the basic trust that the fi- the system can correct itself. You know, that's what we do every day um, and try and make it right um, in an authoritarian situation like in Russia or many, many other countries. Um, you just don't have that opportunity. It's it's all right. kind of it's all it's all kind of, um, you know, uh, manipulated by. You know the higher ups, and you're just—they're all just puppets. You know, right? And, um, it,
0: you know what drives me crazy about—I guess—the modern era that we're living in, and uh, and how Russia, which you know um, abandoned socialism in, in the name of "quote unquote," you know, democratic government, um, still resembles an ol- oligarchy or monarchy or totalitarian regime much more than um you know that they would <laughs> they would like people to think i mean when putin president putin is basically in charge of the entire country i mean that's the antithesis of what a true democracy
1: is supposed to look like if you were to um, read the russian constitution and i have um it's remarkable if you were just to read it and didn't see what country it's from, you go, oh, my God, this is a total blueprint for exactly how you should run a society. <laughs> right, know? right. Perfect. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely fantastic, you know. And, of course, it's all just words on paper. It means nothing, you know. In fact, all constitutions are, except for Britain's, of course, which is unwritten, which I always found weird. But anyway, <laughs> um, um, you know, so we we have these social. Passed on by oral tradition, right? <laughs> we have these social contracts that we boil down to written documents like the constitution and um and it's all a matter of really of trust you know we found that out uh, during the trump administration that all these norms they aren't really law <laughs>
0: you know? like, right you know well, or things that we've taken for granted in the past like the way the government normally operates just based on An understanding, you know, a lot of that was put to the test to see if, you know, there are if that's really the way it goes. And I know we've talked about this before, but one thing that was very interesting about those four years is that a lot of Americans realize that there's some the government does some things that. You know, once you learn about the details of how it actually operates, it opens a lot of eyes that, you know, hey, that seems like not fair <laughs> um, great, great, great. in a lot of ways. Well, well, we're coming up on a break, my friend. So why don't you uh, refill your coffee? I'll do the same.
1: On the other we'll right hand, side of the break, I want to talk about um, Donald Trump's comment about throwing out the Constitution.
0: Yeah, we might as well. Yeah, that's kind of big news. So, all right, we'll be right back
1: after these messages. We are back with more legal defense with Kirk and John. Well, you know, when we were at the end of the first segment there, I I mentioned that um, uh, Donald Trump had made a comment about how he wanted to, quote, throw out the Constitution. And um, and. His basis for that was, well, since the election was stolen, obviously nothing's working, so we need to throw it out. And um, that was pretty jaw dropping, you know? Yeah. I mean, you can't go back and say, well, just kidding, or it's misunderstood, or it's being taken out of context. You know? It was pretty direct. (laughs) every Every single officer of the United States and all, like, even state level. Um, officials, whether they're judges or legislators or governors or senators or whatever, they all take an oath. And the oath isn't, you know, I swear to uphold, you know, the the, the dear leader or whatever, you know. They okay. say an oath to uphold the Constitution. And that's what all members of the military do. You know, they're not swearing allegiance to the president or anything like that. And that's one of the unique, unique things about um, – the way that the United States was really constructed is to to have that oath. If you're going to have allegiance to something, to some common experience and, and social compact um, you know, it's, it's, it's allegiance to that um, uh, togetherness, if you will, you know,
0: through, it's not an allegiance to the government, by the way, it's an allegiance to that, as you say, that idea.
1: Right. And, um, you know, and that's why I always kind of pause when people do the Pledge of Allegiance because it's really, you know, well, I pledge allegiance to the flag. Well, should we pledge allegiance to, you know, I mean, yeah, the flag's a representative thing, but it's really the Constitution and the idea of togetherness, which I guess kind of circles back to the flag as, as a symbol. It does. It's a symbol, yeah, yeah, you know
0: but, I, uh, hey look every every single country that has any sense of national identity, does the same thing and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, But it can be, you know, in certain circumstances. I mean, look at how, you know, in North Korea, how in a, probably the most closed society that exists on the planet, um, you know, has this, they do have an allegiance to an actual person. And I mean, it's just shocking the way that that, you know, like that form of government and the way that it works, it's, Surprising that it continues to work the way that it has for so long, with um, basically all of the citizens kept in the dark and under an extreme
1: form of totalitarian rule. Um, yeah, that's it's, it's um, I actually just read an article about how desperate he is for um, funds to, you know, keep his military going. And in fact, he's looking for US dollars. Um, <laughs> hey, can I borrow some money? For some <laughs> nuclear weapons? Hmm, let's see. Don't worry, I won't do anything with them. I'm just... <laughs> Don't
0: worry. <laughs> it's all for the good of our citizens. Yes. And, and nuclear defense. Um, hey, I saw something really both interesting and shocking. Um, and it's not new. It's something that's been going around for a while. But there is a, a graphic. It's a 14-minute video that shows every nuclear weapon that's been detonated over the course of history and where it happened, and it's like a time lapse thing. And you know, there's been over two thousand one hundred nuclear detonations, Is that and right? yeah, oh, yeah. since you know, since uh, the Trinity test in in uh, the desert in New Mexico, and it just kind of goes through in a time lapse fashion where um, you see these little explosions all over the planet and you see the proliferation that occurs. And it's just shocking to see that there's been so many, well, not, it's not supposed to be happening anymore. I mean, the United States stopped doing that quite some time ago and all the most recent uh, nuclear detonations okay. have been in North Korea. Uh, although I will say that even after the nuclear test ban uh, treaty and so on, uh, France and China, and India and Pakistan continued um, doing most of the nuclear testing after the United States ceased that. But it, you should look it up. It's it's. I think if you just type in "see every nuclear explosion in history," it, this this graphic thing will come up. And like I said, it's 14 minutes, and it's 14 minutes of just like eye-opening shock that wow. <laughs> you, you you literally see 2100, um, you know blips on the map. And each one of those was a release of radiation into the atmosphere. You know, there was this uh, bomb that Russia um, developed in, it was in the early 50s, I want to say 1952 or three. And it's been termed uh, the Tsar bomb, uh, although its official name was something else. And this was a, a weapon that it's the largest nuclear explosion that's ever occurred in history. And it was over uh, 50 megatons. I think it was 53 megatons. And
1: how does that, <laughs> how does that compare? Cause everybody compares it to Hiroshima. So how it, many- it is, uh, I
0: think it's safe to say over, uh, 5,000 times, uh, more powerful. Okay. So, um, it, it is such a dangerous weapon. It's only been used once in, in a test in, um, I think it was in the Bering sea and the pilot that dropped the actual bomb barely that plane barely survived because there was a, a heat and shockwave that nearly took the plane down. Um, but <laughs> they never, no one's ever dared to explode it since then. And uh, but just kind of shock. And you can see it in this video. It's like you can see when because because each little blip is proportional in size to the size of the explosion. And in 1953, you see this huge, you know, <laughs> thing that was like massively um, uh, a terrible thing. But anyway, uh, wow, that was a sidetrack. How did I? Oh,
1: yeah. So let's weird. Get back the, the news. saw a fascinating story that I thought was <laughs> About a gentleman who's currently in Red Granite Correctional Institution in Wisconsin, um, who is serving time for burglary, armed robbery, and abduction. (coughs) Excuse me. His name is Martel Rogers. And he started while in prison, he started a real estate investment group called First Family Real Estate, Realty Investment Group LLC. And they're renovating. They're buying and renovating small residential properties in Milwaukee Central City, uh, and and you know, there. Milwaukee has some serious problems in terms of evictions. I don't know if you ever saw that um, book, Evictions, was by this guy from Princeton who studied Milwaukee as like the eviction capital of the of the country, and. Um, <laughs> Uh, that We have all these kind of dilapidated homes, which, you know, I um, quite often drive through some of these areas and I see them firsthand. And um, it's it's, uh, of course, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70, 100 years of 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 government policy that concentrated these areas through redlining uh, into in this kind of these, you know, um, downtrodden areas. So anyways, a lot of these homes become abandoned, and then the city takes them over, and then they sell them at sheriff's auctions, and so you can pick one up for, you know, literally a few thousand dollars. Um, And so he bought a bunch of these, uh, and and at least four for now, and um, it was just fascinating to me that somebody in prison, number one, has some business sense, (laughs) you know, (laughs) kind of Turns life around and fly right. And number two, that um, that there wasn't any like um, prohibition against a felon for one, but also um, just an actual incarcerated person actually purchasing one of these one of these properties. And because, and I say that because there has been a concerted effort to create obstacles for people with felonies. Um, yes. If, it's it's commonly known as the civil death penalty, <laughs> you know. It's like right. oh, you have a felony. Well, we're not going to lend you money. We're not going to do this. We're not going to, you know, you can't live here. You you know, and you, we can't, you know, you got to check the box on your employment application. You know, it's um um it's it's uh it's it's a real problem, you know, and you can't vote, and right, and I think that. You know, for all the efforts that we make to write the system, and 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 we should keep doing those. Some attention, more attention, I think, should be shown on the um, the effects, the after effects of of having a felony. You
0: know, or well, that's a great transition into what I want to talk about more after the break. But you know what, we got to take a break. So okay, can't wait. <laughs> we'll be right back. Welcome back. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. Uh, John, before the break, you were talking about these, the, um, collateral consequences. This is another way that we word these things, the things that happen when somebody has a felony and this fellow who's at red granite that appears to be running a successful business venture. Um, you know, I agree with you wholeheartedly that it's just so ironic. And I think contradictory that we have a system that purports to, um, punish people, in a in a way that is very uh, un- well understood, you know, before what has been known as truth in sentencing in Wisconsin, there were there were a lot more variables as to what would happen in a person's sentence. And there was a legislative effort and I think, a you know, a societal, cultural effort to have a, a definitive sentence at the time of sentencing. So people would know exactly what's going to happen. And it was at the time it was. Um, touted as a way to give uh, victims of a crime some sense of finality and uh, knowing exactly what would happen, but also for a defendant to know exactly how long an accused, you know, a convicted person to know exactly how long they got to do and what they got to do. So this concept that such and such crime calls for such and such punishment, and it will be so many years of initial confinement, then so many years of extended supervision after that, was supposed to be a way to, I think, philosophically strengthen our, as a society, our trust in the system that it does what it's supposed to do, etc. But it's also, there's a component of that also, that one receives a sentence and serves it. And when they're done with it, they're no longer serving that sentence. That's why it ends at a certain point in most cases, almost all cases. Right. And it, we don't do enough. And I will I will tell you this, John. you know this. There have been efforts on both sides of the aisle. It's not just uh, progressive people that have uh, tried to address this issue because it comes down to an economic problem. The more people we incarcerate, and we know that that's something that is out of control. It continues to be out of control. and we, we every time we try and find solutions to alleviate or reduce the number of people that, are perhaps needlessly incarcerated, uh, you know, there's kickback because of elections, political things, stuff like that.
1: Sure.
0: But when we end up in a situation where, uh, so, so just for example, you know, the expungement laws have been slowly getting to the point where, um, they they're expanding to include more types of offenses, um, you know, uh, higher ages. It used to be that you'd have to be very, very young and commit a very, very minor offense in order to qualify for quote unquote expungement. And that's changed. And that's something that's received bipartisan support because of the economic impacts that, that individual suffers after the stigmatization of um, being convicted. So, you know, we've, the whole thing about you can't vote and the fact that your conviction for whatever it is, is publicly noted. People can find out about it and do pretty much whatever they want. I mean, there are anti-discrimination laws that are almost, I would say unenforceable. Yeah. yeah, uh, Worthless in a lot of ways, you know, and and you and I get this all the time from people we are representing. I hear it constantly. Why do I feel like, I'm guilty until proven innocent. And even when somebody is found guilty, or even if they're found not guilty, there are ramifications down the line that continue for many years and perhaps even the rest of one's life, just because they've been accused of something.
1: Sure. I And I know um, obviously many of my clients over the years, but I also have just friends that I've met that, um, had, you know, one bad episode, um, many years ago when they were younger and they've gone on to very successful lives or really tried to be, but they still have that hanging over over their head, you know, Mm -hmm. or hanging around their neck as it were, you know? Um, and, uh, it shouldn't be, there shouldn't be the scarlet letter business. (laughs) I was going to say, it's like the,
0: it's like the lesson in the scarlet letter that when you brand somebody that it's, it leads to hysterical, you know, fear, and uh, it's a bad thing for society. That was the whole point of the Scarlet Letter, you know.
1: Well, um, I, I think that uh, these systems and have been built up under the belief that, you know, um, hey, we're we're, I don't know, protecting society or we're like showing what the good guys and the bad guys are. Well, it shouldn't be that way. (laughs) You know, people can and do change, you know, um, why do we call it a correction system? You know, I've I've been reading, I just, I I told you off air, I have been reading, um, Michael O'Hare's book. He's a professor at Marquette and really one of the leading scholars in the country about, uh, mass incarceration. And I'm reading his Wisconsin sentencing in the tough on crime era And, um, and one of the remarkable things that we've talked about on the show before, but he brought it into more focus was the, the, the rapid explosion of prison populations, not just in Wisconsin, but across the country. And it all, and he compared, he started in 1973, where there was about 2,500 prisoners in the Wisconsin prison system. And, um, and he tracked it up till 2013 um, when there was literally 10 times as many. So, mm. you know, well, I guess it was 2,300. So it's like now there's 23,000. And um, or at least it was in 2013. And, you know, and he, and he, and he matches that every single state followed this exact same um, path. Uh, and, and it's so along with that actual incarceration prison model came along these, these civil consequences. Can't vote. Can't, you know, get a job. Can't do this. Can't do that. Can't live here. And, um, uh, and you know, there's been a little bit of pullback on some of that in the last few years, but not that much, you know, we've kind of normalized it. We kind of view it as normal. And, um, because I remember growing up, uh, watching the news, um, and, and actually hearing those numbers, you know, they would, the, the newscaster would talk about, Oh, there's, you know, 2,300 people in the Wisconsin prison system. And, you know, even as a kid, I was like, well, you know, we have millions of people here. So, you know, they must've, they must've be, you know, the actual people that belong there, you know, as opposed to um, let's just, Criminalize everything, <laughs> and, um, and um, let's uh, let's greatly expand this because it's popular. You know,
0: that's it right there. It's popular, <laughs> and uh, it's it, you know the the way that people gain their understanding of the way the legal system works is also problematic in our country because it tends to come from sensationalized television shows and. Uh, Other experiences, I, you know, I have many clients that say, oh, I had a cousin or a brother or an uncle or an aunt or somebody that went through a terrible process in the justice system. But still, they never believed it would happen to them, you know, Mm -hmm. because until it does, until you're accused of something, and I emphasize that accused of something, uh, your average person in society really doesn't think about it very often. They think about and, and it's something that. Really, that's part of the Constitution. It doesn't say it anywhere, but it's part of the spirit. If you add it all up and say, what is life in this country supposed to be like? And you're supposed to feel that you have individual worth that, you know, assuming that you're not three-fifths of a person. But, you know, you're supposed to have individual worth that you can uh, set goals and have – and the government will not – hold you down because of who you are or what you do or anything like that. And, and uh, that's when you go through life that you have control over your life. So I think that's why something that tends to persist in our American conscience. And you don't want to hear if it's not something that's right in front of you or something you're personally experiencing, you don't want to hear it. You don't want to think about it. So like when we're picking juries and jury trials, I always get the sense that, a lot of these folks have never thought for a minute about the, the, the details of our justice system, only the headlines that they may have gleaned from watching the news or things they have heard. And when we're actually here doing the nuts and bolts of how this process works, a lot of people are just you know, dumbfounded at how, how this happens.
1: Well, that's, um, why, that's why that there's so much legislation by anecdote you know, so if some sensational thing happens, which it regularly does, mm-hmm. <laughs> excuse me, then immediately some legislator will pop up and say, I'm going to propose a bill to, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All <laughs> right. We do, have, we do have to take a break, but we'll be right back after these messages. We are back with our final segment of today's episode of Legal Defense. Time flies when and- you're having fun and when you drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> you know, uh, I think we should talk about one of the, well, arguably one of the most significant Supreme Court cases to be heard, um, certainly this term, but in a long time, and it has nothing to do with abortion. Of course, that was very significant, um, but it has to do with the independent state legislature doctrine. Have you heard of this? Oh, sure. Not I really. know you have. i <laughs> not really <more> res- <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll let you me so, about it though. Well, it's, it's, it's essentially this, this case came out of North Carolina and, um, the, the Republican legislature developed some maps for congressional lines after the census and which, you know, you want to do every state does that because some states contract and some expand with population. So the number of, um, uh, congressional positions can either get larger or get smaller for example new york lost one you know and i think we lost one maybe in 2010 i can't remember but um in any event they they developed these maps and they were thrown out by their state supreme court as excessive political gerrymandering and it wasn't like racial problems uh it was just it was a politically obviously politically motivated. So they went back, they redrew them, went back up to the, their Supreme Court, and they said, no, this, this violates the state constitution. So they've brought this to the U.S. Supreme Court, which um, shockingly took the case <laughs> under the theory that in the Constitution, it says that the state legislatures will determine you know, the time, place, and manner of the elections for Congress. All right. So their theory is, is that this is an inherent power of the legislatures alone and that no Supreme Court, no state Supreme Court can um, be involved in that process at all. They have no review of that. That's their theory. And um, I will tell you that it's, it's, a, it's a fringe theory that suddenly is in front of the Supreme Court. And a lot of conservative observers, really, really, like, prominent um, conservative jurists have lined up against this. In fact, I think every single amicus brief, which is a friend of the court brief, they're not part of the – they're one of the parties, um, has has filed one – has filed an opposition, including the the government, the U.S. government, so uh, the Justice Department. So um, they had oral arguments – um, just last week, and uh, it's it's kind of remarkable, and this reminds me as a young lawyer how I've watched intellectual dishonesty among judges, especially in the, in the appellate um, level, uh, to take whatever result they want and then reverse engineer <laughs> under some justification um, the, the path to get there. Instead of, you know, Saying, what are we even doing here? Why is this case even here? you know um and that's that's what I feel is going on here after reading up on the oral arguments. so I don't know where this is going, but there was clearly some of the justices that were um, actually entertaining this idea so wow. so I, you know, I think it would be an absolute just an unbelievable mess if if this was somehow adopted as you know, legitimate. Well,
0: it, it, it would support. be I another, mean, uh, political and, oh. and, uh, societal planting of seeds that could result in the collapse of, uh, the union. I mean, it's happened before for various reasons and you do that kind of thing. And there's no, what, if you t- read it to say that states can do elections any way they wish, uh, whenever they want and however they want, which makes literally no sense when you're talking about um, people that are going to be in part of the federal Congress uh, or any sort of position that um, relates to what about the basic uh, protection of voter rights, you know, voting freedom, individual freedoms. So under that theory, a state legislature could have could make up uh, whatever rules they want that are disenfranchising people that are making it, you know, as difficult as possible for people. They don't want to have uh, voting power you know, excluded from the process. And there's no re- there's no judicial review of any of that. That's
1: so well, it goes back to, you know, post-Civil War um, poll taxes, literacy, literacy tests, grandfather clauses. You know, things yep. like that.
0: Yeah, because the um, idea of a literacy test, which you'll find that nowhere in the Constitution that that should be allowed, except under that theory that states can, you know, make their own local rules for whatever reason. And that's why the expansion of, you know, what it actually means to have civil liberties was sharply focused during that time period.
1: Yeah. So, I don't know. That was just a remarkable case. I don't know how it's going to come out, but there's a bunch of remarkable cases coming this term. And uh, um, with this super majority, you know, I mean, it's like uh, anything can happen. Well, let's talk about you know? our state Supreme court because
0: big news. You have an interesting, up. <laughs> big news that uh, came out a couple, what, I guess a week ago, uh, Jennifer Doro, circuit court judge in Waukesha County, who just presided mm-hmm. over the Darrell, uh, you know, the Waukesha parade case. And, and by the way, we all can agree that she handled herself as well as she could under the circumstances. And she got a lot of public praise for that. Well, <laughs> I think, it, I think that after she delivered the whopping, you know, seven consecutive life sentences or whatever it was, there was a standing ovation in the courtroom. So, uh, there was there were rumors that people within her inner circle were going to encourage her to run for Supreme Court, and I guess she mulled it over and decided that she would. Hot on the heels of that,
1: well, case. I I have a theory that that was always in the back of her mind. And don't forget, she's the chief judge. Yes. So um, uh, that that case was originally assigned to another judge, and then they substitute on him mm-hmm. uh, when he, he had lawyers, and um, and then. She's the one that makes the determination, so she decided to take that case. It for so herself. for herself. <laughs> it's my theory that she purposely wanted that case because she wanted to run. And you'll notice the timing that that case concluded um, with the sentencing, uh, I, I don't know, a week, maybe two weeks before the deadline to file for the Supreme Court, and you can mm-hmm. start distributing nomination papers on December 1st. So, Very interesting observation. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's just utter speculation. But I can tell you that um, she is going to be hard to beat with all that publicity. Holy cow.
0: Well, Kelly's going to run again. So
1: they might chew yeah. each other up. Who knows? <laughs> I I, I don't know. I have a feeling he's going to bow out. Yeah, Because I how do you how do you um, compete get, compete against somebody who's gotten literally international um, publicity and uh, pretty positive publicity you know right, right. Um, And you know so uh, it's 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 gonna be hard to see how this comes out any other way, but that'll be that'll this be a very thing
0: to me by the way where uh, somebody who's a judge now, is somebody that I knew when that person was a brand new lawyer. And, and I already had some experience under my belt and had done trials. In fact, I think I'm right about this. I'd have to ask her, but I think Judge Doros' very first trial that she ever did was against me um, when she was in the DA's office. Um, really? Yep. Keeps happening. People that were, you know, baby lawyers in the DA's office that I went up against years and years ago. Now they're like on the Supreme Court or whatever, you know. <laughs> so, and you I've been doing what I've been doing all along. So, you know. Did you
1: win or lose?
0: Uh, I believe I lost. Uh, okay. I'd have to ask her, but um, I think I did. That sounds about right. Because uh, the ones in Waukesha that I've won stand out for various reasons and like most good lawyers, I've lost a few too, you know. It happened.
1: Well, I tried a case against Dan Kelly. Ah. And and here's why is because Dan was at Reinhardt, which is a large civil firm, but there was this program in the DA's office where they would um, in fact, the the firms would would want their litigators to go spend some time at the DA's office. Strictly to get experience because it's so rare that civil cases go to trial. So I show up and, you know, is a misdemeanor. And so in misdemeanor court in Milwaukee County, you never know which DA is going to be handling it because it's like, you know, it's sort of a on who got hired that week. That's the guy. (laughs) Never met before. I was like, oh, okay, And I knew he wasn't a DA because um, oh, we have to take a break. Well, anyways, I'll finish that story next week. All right. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You can tune
0: in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 on 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.
1: Have a great one.